Hi, I'm Duncan. Um, James and I are going to talk about Yuval and his theories on human and AI a little bit. Um, we've been friends for 25 years now. Um, and yeah, hopefully this will be an interesting conversation. Thank you, thank, thank you, Duncan. Um, hi, my name is James. So I, uh, I live here in Sydney. And uh, as per Duncan's point, I think we've been friends for a little bit longer than 25 years now. We met when we were five or six. And we're now four. I mean, thirty-four. Yeah, so thirty years. <laughs> it's a long time. Thirty years. Wow. Um, anyways, um, why did you pick this article, James? You picked it. Yeah. So um, this is one of the most fascinating um, areas, uh, I think, in life in general at the moment, and that is um, where we're heading as a species in terms of uh, and. A, a larger concept is what does it mean to be human? So, you Jeff, what article is it? You haven't said which article it is. Sorry? Right. You haven't said which article it is. All right, so, um, if, if I'm not mistaken, it was actually a video on um, yeah. Yuval's discussion with the World Economic Forum on um, the, the history of mankind's future. And so he basically just explained to us how data is going to have a very, very prominent role in the, um, in our brains in the not-too-distant future. Cool. And I think that people can be biohacked. All right, I might start with the first point. Um, I think it's very poignant or pertinent um, given the Cambridge Analytica stuff that's just come out. Um, so what they did is effectively harvest data out of Facebook to understand who people are and then feed them specific messages to try to get them to sway them to vote for Trump. Um, and one of the things which I've sort of become more and more aware of is, and this is my point, humans don't necessarily make rational decisions. I think we think we do, but actually often a lot of the time we're making decisions based on emotions. And there are certain emotions that resonate a lot more. So these are things like fear, greed, envy, lust, hope, pride. And if people can push our emotional buttons, then they can get us to make decisions that we wouldn't necessarily make if we were not being emotional. Um, so on one end of the spectrum, there might be rational Duncan and the other end is emotional Duncan. And they can push like, a fear button. Uh, Hillary's going to take away your guns or something. And then you will vote against Hillary. Um, so I do think that what Yuval is saying is that humans can kind of be measured and can be gamed a bit. And we don't necessarily make rational decisions. Yeah, so I, I, I definitely think um, the point about uh, the Cambridge Analytics uh, I don't. It's not. It's not a leak or whatever it was. But the the, um, the debacle around that it very much um, it, it is relevant to this topic of conversation. It's not from a regulation point of view, which Yuval does touch on, which is you know how are we going to regulate who's going to own this data? But it um, it goes back to the central tenet of our uh, impressionability as people around data and how data can control that. So when we're looking in the future, we're looking at computers that will basically break down our brains as a complex algorithm. Uh, and that is, um, so that is one of the tenets of Yuval's book, Homo Deus. Um, he says that humans are not special. They are simply the most advanced form of algorithms uh, in nature. Okay, what was your point there? So I, did, I didn't actually get it. So what was the key point you were trying to make? My point is that um, we have a 
vulnerability in that our brains are not mystical. They are algorithms that can be uh, exploited. I agree. So um, in the evolution of humans, um, we went from all, you know, all sort of living things, single cell organisms and got more. And, and I like the way that, wait, but why, uh, Tim, ever put this, there's your lizard brain. And then on top of that, it's like fight or flight, you know, breathing. Then there's your monkey brain, which is mainly feelings. And then there's your neocortex or human brain, which is kind of uh, logic. Now, this is obviously a massive oversimplification, but those things can kind of be put in different ways. So you can actually get part of your monkey brain or emotional brain to fire off. And then your emotional state fundamentally affects your decision making. And so there's cognitive biases and different things like that actually can affect what decisions you make. And this means that you can be hacked. So often what advertising does, as an example, is picks what's built into us. So for instance, we want to procreate. If, if you see attractive member of the sex you're attracted to, you feel happy. Like literally, your brain is releasing dopamine. And so advertising built on this inbuilt sort of biological wiring by putting like attractive people around and then having them drinking a Coca-Cola or something and then making you want to, you know, drink Coca-Cola. So what I didn't realize, I don't know, five years ago is that how much of my biological wiring can be hacked in effect and affect my decision making. So I think we can um, think about it in, uh, in the frame of um, what does this actually mean uh, and how do we defend ourselves against this kind of um, data exploitation? So I know, um, so Duncan, you and I, we like to talk a lot about um, what we think will happen in the future uh, as per humans. And so there's a simple question, which is, do we think that will come a point in the future where uh, whether you want to call it mankind or just life itself will fully transcend the biological uh, limitations of a um, meat machine and go completely into the digital realm? So that's a simple question we can ask ourselves, um, which is, do we think that point will ever happen? Um, my opinion, uh, and I'm not so strong in it, but I, I've given it enough thought to have rationale behind it, is that it's not going to happen. Um, there will be both digital and organic consciousness, but I don't think mankind will ever completely transcend to that level. Why, why is that? So I would say that it's going to be possible, whether or not. So I, I refer to the body as the meat sack. Um, yep, and exactly. I think the meat sack has downsides and upsides. So like I know, the meat sack gets sick. The meat sack gets tired. The meat sack needs to go to the toilet. The meat sack gets moody. But like some upsides from the meat sack, I think food can be a wonderful joy. Um, and if you were just having your consciousness. So I think your body is a life support system for your brain and your brain is a life support system for your consciousness. Um, and if you know, you can prod the consciousness by eating food and it delivers happiness. If you were just a consciousness inside, a, you know, a digital realm, you may not be able to get the same pleasure from food. Also, I mean, having sex can be pleasurable. And so there are upsides to the meat sack and downsides. But my sort of key question to you is like, I do think we're going to be able to get out of this meat sack or body. Um, but, but it doesn't mean we necessarily want to be out of it 100% of the time. Mm. So uh, are you saying that there will be some kind of, um, you know, option that people will have where they can just um you know have an out-of-body experience you would as you would say yeah well, I, I think that we will be able to upload our consciousness i mean i don't think it's a question of if i think it's when um you know read the singularities near and look at all the ai look at Neuralink, etc yeah. and so 
to me, I thought, I wanted to know your question. You said, we're not going to be able to. But I don't think that that's... I wanted to understand what you were saying because I didn't okay, know if so, you were saying you don't think that's possible. One, one of the best arguments... Um, so, yes, in the singularity, it talks about having computers that will have complexity levels that will match the human brain. Um, and that by way of um, extrapolation, we should be able to replicate what is in our uh, mind onto a digital um, computer. The, the challenge is, though, is that in this premise you could exist simultaneously as yourself in your meat sack and as yourself in the digital realm. Um, so even though we don't actually know what consciousness is, by the sheer um, uh, uh, existence of there being two yous, you cannot logically state that you are in the machine, you are still in your body, and there is just a replica of you in the machine. So you have not transcended, you have just created a copy of yourself. I think that's fair. Um, but that doesn't mean that there won't necessarily be two use, because I think, in effect, what, what we are is our consciousness mm. and then a whole lot of senses. So there's sight, sound, touch, feel. It just happens that it comes through, through the body. Um, and so we're kind of an accumulation of all the sensory inputs <laughs> that we have and how our consciousness has dealt with them. People talk about schemas and like cognitive behavioral therapy and other things. And that's affected by the inbuilt biological wiring, which is like, don't die and all this other stuff. And so if you were to basically replicate your mind or your consciousness into a computer, instead of a life support system for it being your brain, it is a digital life support system. Then it will start to accumulate different experiences. And so it will not be you because it will be, you know, you split, you you forked at that point. So there can be multiple use. Um, So, but, and, you know, do you want to keep the meat sack? Would people be able to download back into a meat sack? Um, you know, I think that what, you know, that, you know, Ray Kurtzall would say is yes. Um, so, yeah, I'll stop there. All right. Um, well, I think that the, the central argument, though, is that um, if you split, then, it's, again, essentially, it's not you splitting, it's you um, duplicating. Like to say you split means that your consciousness is split in half. So, um uh, I, re- I'm not saying really, split, really I said good. forked, James. Like, there was two of you, just like you can fork a code base. Well, like, and then, because you are an accumulation of all the experiences you've had and how you've dealt with that experience. Mm. And it's just that then there'll be, uh, in, in this scenario, two versions, yeah. but they'll start to diverge because they won't have exactly the same experience from that point on. Yeah, but when you split code base, you're literally taking half the code and you're moving it. Not out. taking half, James. You copy it, and then someone starts working on a different version of it, say, Evolvers. You're not cutting it in half and getting 50-50. You're taking an yeah. image. So I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that um, it, it pays to be clear on what we mean by transcending our meat sack. Because um, for me, by, she, um, by being able to exist simultaneously in your meat sack and in the computer, that's not me in the computer. That is something that has my... Um, my coding um, simply replicated. So when I die in my meat sack, there will just be um, this computer version of me that lives on, kind of like if I die and I have a character in World of Warcraft and they live on, that's not me. That's just my avatar. So this element of humans as a species transcending into our bodies into the digital world, I don't actually think it's possible. But I want to put another... um, you know, I guess, linking the chain, which is, does that matter? I'm going to shift topics here. Not that this isn't interesting. Oh, okay, we'll keep there. Um, 
if Gogamon Neuralink can mean that you are inside the biology, like the meat sack for one of these things, but instead of your senses being your eyes and your, you know, hearing and sound, they'll be able to wire directly into your brain and prod it. So it's kind mm. of like virtual reality, except without using your eyes to, to see. It's actually hardwired in. Yeah. So that isn't uploading your consciousness. That's just enabling your consciousness to be stimulated. So i.e. the senses come from something else. And that I think is kind of the way house. So you haven't split in that example. Yep. So um, first of all, I've got notes on uh, Wave but Wire and Neuralink here. So you haven't deviated too far from the, the middle. I think these are all very much interrelated. Um, I think this coupling of the mind and AI is definitely where there's a, um, you know, the, the biggest potential for humans to transcend is. I think um, what we are not fully considering is what... Um, I forgot his name, but what White Bolt Y is talking about with the human colossus. So I don't know if you want me to expand or you to talk about that. I don't, I'm going to take it in a different direction. So you quickly do the human colossus. All right, so the human colossus is basically a collective um, entity of all connected minds in the world. Um, and so for me, the most interesting parallel is when we look at the history of um, life, when it started out as a single-celled organism, it turned into a nervous system, and then it turned into a central nervous system. I believe we are right now, human beings, single-cell organisms walking around what you would call the colossus, and then suddenly there's going to be a nervous system where everyone will be able to connect to each other through um, this inter intermediary. What to suggest that there won't eventually some point become a central nervous system of this level of systemization between human minds? I, I think it already exists. This is, I think, Tim Urban from Webberwise point. The internet is that. It's just that the interface is like our phones or computers. Yeah. So the, the, and so the, the input system. output is not very good yeah. versus being able to be like hardwired into your brain. Yeah. And so one of the other things is that, say, an average person speaks 120 words a minute but they can read it 200 words a minute and the top one percentile reader can read it a thousand words a minute. And so if you are able to hard, so basically your brain is being constrained by your physiology. And so it's capable of more than kind of what it's sitting in. And so if you can give it better input output, then it can do a lot more. Yeah. And so I think we have very poor input output. So the Colossus already exists. It's just like a bad or like a slow Colossus. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's a very, very uh, sloppy jellyfish. But by um, linking our brains together, you actually have what could be described as a nervous system where everyone can respond to each other. Like you, I, like you could literally have it in such a way that, Duncan, if you got punched in the arm, I could feel it. Um, and that's um, one of the basic tenets of the nervous system. So what, I'm, what my mind is, where, where I'm going with this is, is that if we turned our very um, weak nervous system which is the internet into a strong nervous system which is Neuralink will there be a point where that then trans into a central nervous system of human minds I think there definitely could be um, what you're telling on is that there'll be new ways of communicating you know right now it's more like verbal or maybe you can like through body language or mm. touch but you will be able to actually show how you're feeling and they feel how you're feeling um, so yes you have to do this and they say that humans right now are hardwired for good. And this is our survival 
inbuilt mechanism. So doing a good thing, like an altruistic thing, actually makes our, us feel happy. You know, dopamine, serotonin, et cetera, goes off. And so if you have, so Peter Singer talks about expanding your circle of care. If you have a bigger, uh, you know, ability for empathy through a greater, you know, through new channels and through faster, you know, communication, then hopefully we care more, you know, mm. for others and we hopefully make better decisions as a group or as a colossus. And so this, you know, means I hope the future is good. Um, obviously, you know, new tools mean that perhaps new weapons <laughs> take things down, but, you know, there's chances that it's a much better place than now. Mm. So for me, the key um, question is then, ever since our brains or our algorithms got to the point where we could start to jump off the evolutionary um, path, uh, I mean, we've already shown evidence of having done that because, one, evolution is no longer relevant. The, the weak don't die, the strong survive. We have medication that allows for that. Um, and two, we can now create a, our own universe through science. So we basically hacked the evolutionary um, cycle, and now we created our own, um, I guess, exponential curve on top of that. So we're basically going to create this new life force, but it won't be enough time for human bodies to evolve to. We will literally have to design it ourselves. So do you think that that will be a, the limiting factor that will make us then say, right, well, we shouldn't be human anymore? You know, our brains are too limited in their scope because they have all of these deep-seated um, limitations in them that doesn't allow us to transcend. We, as a species, have to evolve if we want to get to um, the next level of consciousness. Um, and to do that, we have to leave our brains behind. Um, so I think this is getting into a deeper uh, discussion. Like, what is, does it mean to live a good life? What is the purpose of life? And historically, it was just to sustain your species. And actually, that's kind of where we're still at. Humans got so good at procreating that we broke the earth. You know, in 1900, there was 1.5 billion of us. Now there's going to be 8 billion very soon. So we've kind of done such a good job that we, you know, have got to stop it or else we're all going to die um, from climate change and other things. However, to me, what it is as a human being, there's the human part, like the fleshy thing, and the being, which is your consciousness. What it means to live a good life, I think, is more like I would look at it from a philosophical perspective and a utilitarian perspective, which is like, you know, optimizing well-being and minimizing misery. You know, mm. just because me having five children or something doesn't make me a better, you know, a being than one that has no children. It, to me, it's not necessarily relevant. How good my life was, i.e. how much well-being there was in it, mm. is, is not related to procreating the race. Yeah. It could be, if that's where your well-being comes from. But that's kind of the historic indoctrination that we're with. And so I think there's every chance that we are able to focus more on what is important for each individual, each being, to live a good life, and there is no one answer, through transcending the meat sack than staying inside the meat sack. Mm. Um, one, what I would ask is, like, does, does life care whether individuals... Um, you know, have a good life any more than that just being a survival mechanism. You know, if we want to focus on, you know, having the best possible life, then that will ensure that we, you know, buy into this thing called life and that we maintain it. Um, but is that the purpose or is that simply a driver of um, our survival instinct? And so if we no longer had limitations such as a mortal body, if we no longer had um, 
desires that are deeply seated in our subconscious brain, you know, our limbic system and our um, uh, uh, amygdala, um, because those are what are programmed for our survival, if we simply lived in our neocortex, would we have this desire to have a good life or would we simply live in a much more pragmatic and logical form of existence where simply we just want to acquire knowledge, transcend any limitation, um, and I guess you know completely view the way in which we value livelihood in a different way. I think you almost got it the opposite way around how I view it. We're biologically wired to procreate. Yep. Like if you have skin on skin touch, oxytocin goes off. If you you know see a good looking person, then you know dopamine goes off. Yep. And so. Right now, and then social indoctrination. You're born, you need to find a life partner and have children. This is the story that everyone is told. So we're biologically wired for it and we're socially indoctrinated for it. Yep. Decision, in my opinion, about what is a good life for them. They take the answer that society and biology have given them. I think if we rid ourselves of these social indoctrination as well as the biological wiring, mm. that there are many answers for this. There are many ways mm. to experience great well-being. And, and, you know, that can be from work. If you are learning, you get great satisfaction. If you're helping others, you get great satisfaction. I don't think there is one way to live a good life. I do think that you should think about it. And I think that if we are able to get out of the social indoctrination, biological wiring, and we don't have time as a limit, which will what's happened if we transcend biology, then people will think about this. And I think that the amount of well-being in the world yep. and, and, you know, will be much higher and misery will be much lower. So yep. I think it's, it's a good place. I, I, I think you've got some really good points there, um, which I, I, I really appreciate. So um, let's now move to the way Ray Dalio has explained it in his book, The Principles, which I also, um, we talked about very briefly last week, um, but I'll, I will mention it here. So one of his principles is that nature does not optimize for the individual, it optimizes for the whole. It does not care about you, it cares about your contribution to ensuring the whole is successful or flourishes. Um, and so um, putting the different lens on this, is our brains have got a wiring in it that wants us to be contributing to the whole. You know, we are social creatures, our true our truest, um, so what I read is that our truest form of pleasure and purpose is in our relationships with other people. Um, and those relationships are built on our ability to help others. Um, and what this suggests is that the human brain has figured out that the best way to survive is to program itself to want to help others, um, which is what I guess this higher form of purpose could actually be considered to be. So I think that you are looking at it the opposite way. Mm. That's not a purpose that we have made. It's a purpose we have inherited. So we are, in some respects, a product of the evolution of how we got to here. Mm -hmm. And yes, evolution made cooperation a thing that made us happy because it was better than not cooperating. Yeah. But again, that was in a world where there was scarcity of food and water and there were enemies that were going to come and attack you and life had a limited time span. Yeah. And so, yes there is cognitive biases built into the brain, right? And wiring, which make this, you know, you want to collaborate is, is actually wired in versus going ahead. That doesn't mean it's going to override everything. But that's not necessarily where purpose comes from. You, know, you can be run by your brain or you can run your brain. Mm. And the thing is, is where we sort of get back. And in the beginning, like, 
people don't realize this, I don't think, how much wiring is built into you from a biological perspective and from a cognitive biases perspective, and therefore how much it affects your decision-making. And so I think in a slightly different thing, one of the things that I've come to believe is that you can start to observe your consciousness. And the thing is what a lot of you know, people who talk about enlightenment are on. And if you can, you can start to affect how you do this. So your purpose should be something you choose, not something you inherit. So I, I agree with those points, and I think they're really interesting. It's, can we determine how much, like, you know, I agree too, you can drive your brain. You can be in the um, driver's seat and not let those baser level or lower level desires, um, you know, compel your decision making. Um, but do we know how much of those in our subconscious feed into what we derive as value or pleasure or purpose in our conscious level? Um, I'm just trying to think. You can stop there if you want. Yeah. Or do you want to keep going? No, if you have a point, then um, feel free. Yeah, this is the thing. I don't think people know. This is the whole, you know, determinism versus libertarian free will. There's an illusion of free will. Hmm. And this is how humans can be hacked, which is what Yuval was saying, which is what Cambridge Analytica were trying to do with Trump's campaign. They were trying to use our low-level, you know, emotional wiring to get us to make decisions. Yep. Um, so for me, one of the things which I believe is that humans can become more aware of their own mind and start to see what's going on. So they say you can observe your mind or you can observe your consciousness. And so I think most people don't understand how much they can actually be hacked or, or driven to do things. But I think that if you spend time trying to figure out what's going on in your mind through meditation, through journaling, through counseling, through whatever else it is, you can, you actually become more aware of what's driving you. And as you do that, you can start to affect it more. And so I was interested, like, do you agree with, with that, James? And, you know, if so, have you, do you think you become more aware of your mind? Yeah. Um, so short answer is absolutely. I think you can 100% have a lot more control over your journey in life if you become a lot more self-aware. Um, and the best example I can give is the time between cause and effect, um, which they call um, the gray area in your brain. The longer you can make that, so a cause and effect being, um, you know, something happens and you respond immediately to it instinctively. Um, if, you can, if you can compel yourself, if you can control your mind to pause between the event and your response to it, that grey time, that grey area in between is your ability to control how you react to it. Um, so that is a very simple example of um, me agreeing with you, Duncan, that yes, you can definitely, um, you know, I guess, control your or like lead yourself uh, and by you know by that effect you know change or control your own destiny yeah i i agree um you know it's sort of putting that slightly another way it used to be that i felt frustrated then i was frustrated but just because i'm feeling frustration doesn't mean i have to become frustrated mm. just because i'm feeling joy doesn't mean i have to be joyful so some way that people put things is like emotions are like little programs. So something happened and that made you feel frustration. Now, how you choose to react to that and respond, are you going to become frustrated? Are you then going to have an action where you get annoyed at someone? Or are you going to say, why did I get frustrated by that? What's the learning? Like, what was the stimulus that caused that frustration? Yeah. Am I responding correctly? Should I get frustrated at all? Or should this actually be something which gives me happiness? Um, and so I think that people don't realize how their brain runs. 
And so one thing, like, for instance, Eckhart Tolle would say, or this is my understanding of his definition of enlightenment, it's the ability to turn on and off thought. So you can actually turn off thought in your head, and then you're left just with feelings. So I would say that, say, euphoria is feeling good, unadulterated by thought. It's just you've got a certain amount of bandwidth in your mind, and you're giving 100% of that bandwidth over to that feeling. And most people have never had the thought side of their mind off in their life. Mm. It's always whizzing around doing things. And when you realize that you can do this, that like you can control your brain, and not necessarily 100% of the time, well, I certainly can't, it's revolutionary. Uh, and mm. it just changes how you think about everything. Yeah. So the, the, the point that um, was made most clear to me was uh, Dalai Lama's quote, which is, happiness is wanting what you have, not having what you want. And there's a very key distinction here, which is that a lot of people in life believe that happiness comes from the acquisition of things or experiences or, you know, I will be happy when X. But um, true happiness is when you control your own mind in terms of realizing that you only need what you have right now to be happy. You do not need something to happen in the future. Um, in order to attain fulfillment, you can actually achieve that right now through your mind. Um, so I think this, uh, it, it is a mindset. It's an ideology. It's something that, like you said, people don't realize. People think that you must do or you must attain or you must experience X to be happy. When really all you, all you do need is your own mind and right now. And that's the other point, is that there is no future. There's only ever now. And so you can be happy right now or you can't. I'm not sure I necessarily agree with that last part, um, but I, I used to believe that external circumstances dictated my internal mind space. So as an example, if I was stressed at work, the way to become not stressed was to finish all the work. And then when it was not stressful at work, I wouldn't be stressed. But then I kind of realized that it doesn't matter what's happening externally. My mind to respond to that. And so this is getting to more of my definition of enlightenment, which is where you choose how to respond to what's going on. You choose the feelings. You choose the thoughts. You don't have it automatically done for you by the programming that has occurred to you your entire life. Mm. And I think that that's kind of one of the things that you need to sort of look for. Everything begins and ends in the mind. Um, so the external circumstances don't necessarily need to be something, some vision of what you have to be good for you to be living a good life, to be enjoying. I think emotional health is feeling all feelings in a healthy way. So as an example, frustration felt healthily might mean that you care about something because then you got frustrated. And what made you frustrated is a, is a signal on something that you need to change to be able to make that frustration not occur again. And that's healthy frustration. Mm. So this actually brings us to an interesting um, dilemma or question that um, I think Sam Harris champions quite well, uh, which is, and you touched on it before, the element of free will uh, and whether you actually believe that we have free will. So if you're Sam Harris, you would argue that we don't um, uh, by way of the fact that we did not create ourselves, we did not have any control over our circumstances. Um, but our circumstances include every single neuron that is constructed in our brain and all the events that's happened to us up to now that have subsequently um, molded those neurons. Um, so the question is, even though we think we're in control, um, 
are we actually like you know Sam Harris would, would um, propose that we're actually not um, that's not to suggest that if there's no point and you shouldn't do anything and just sit back and let life happen you need to continue on with you know controlling these thoughts but the underlying um, mechanism behind that is that you actually had no inputs in that to begin with therefore you cannot have free will yeah, I've listened to Sam Harris talk about this, and the honest truth is that I don't properly understand his argument. <laughs> uh, I'm going to give you my two cents. External circumstances definitely matter. So, for instance, if, I don't know, you've just had a fight with your partner and you're very unhappy, that's going to affect how you interact with somebody next. Mm. Um, if you've just, you know, gotten a raise, you're probably going to be happy and then you're going to, you know, be more joyful to be around. Uh, and then you might, you know, be, if someone bad, you know, something bad happens to someone, you might be much more supportive. Um, so external circumstances definitely matter. And I think advertising is a key sort of thing in this. They can affect your decision-making. You know, you're born and you, you believe that, I don't know, you need to find a partner. You didn't necessarily make that up. It was sort of inherited into you. And that's where, you know, Cambridge Analytica have been trying to do this, figure out these buttons to push, push them and affect people's decisions. I do believe, however, that you can become more aware of how you do this. So the external thing doesn't matter, but then you can start to, instead of just responding, you can, so instead of reacting, you can respond. And that, so basically there is free will. However, I think people think that they have much more free will than they truly do. Like, I think if you've never spent time trying to observe your mind and understand how you, you know, react to things, then you're probably like, I don't know, 25% actual free will, 75% of stuff's been determined by other people. But as you become more aware of your mind, I think that goes up. So I think it's a combination, not one or the other. Um, so if I were to um, get your answer, I would believe you, you would believe, I, my understanding is you believe there is free will. Is that correct? Yeah, so there is, but also the, the external circumstances and our yeah. social you know, indoctrination and biological wiring yeah. affect our decision-making. Yeah. So it's not... 100% free will or 100% determinism. Yeah. And it depends on each circumstance. So some other ones, you know, you might be only having 10% free will or maybe zero. And other times you do. So I think you can also increase the percentage of free will that you have mm. if you become more aware. Mm. And I kind of term that as enlightened. Like if you're more aware of how your mind works and you're making more decisions of your own free will, that's kind of my definition of yeah. enlightenment. Yeah. Um, okay. So firstly, I agree. I definitely think there is such a thing as free will. Um, so, I, so the antithesis to this is determinism. And determinism basically states if you knew where every atom in the universe was and what direction it was heading, you could predict the future. Um, and I don't think that is true of the mind, especially one where you are, um, you know, to just take your words um, to make my point, Duncan, where you are in control where you are not reacting to, you know, beta um, instinct, but you are observing and you are making your own decision on what you want out of any experience or what you want out of life in general. Um, I, I do think that the arguments that Sam puts forward are kind of moot in the sense that, you know, we did not create ourselves. We did not um, determine the environmental factors that we were born into. Um, but I don't think you need to have those to have free will. Um, you know, just because I didn't decide to be born, that doesn't mean that what I have with this brain or with this life is not for me to decide what I want to do with it. 
Um, so bringing this back into how we got here with things like um, Cambridge uh, Analytics. Analytica, James. Cambridge Analytica. Oh, terribly sorry. Please forgive me. How, how then can we safeguard against this kind of thing in the future? Because it's only going to happen more often. Uh, okay. Um, so humans don't have the antibodies for this. So, so when opium hit China, there was opium dens and everyone, you know, opium dens and everyone smoking opium. You know, then when cigarettes came along, you know, 90% of people were smoking cigarettes and then we built the antibodies and now it's sort of 10% in the West. And so the new thing is kind of social media. It used to be that media had big, you know, distribution problems. You know, newspapers had to be delivered to a house. There were only three TV channels. Radio, you know, was only, if you missed it, it was gone. And now with the internet, anyone can get anything at any time. And so there's a new thing that we haven't built antibodies for. And I think you're seeing this with a massive reaction against Facebook. Humans, uh, you know, don't necessarily know what information they should feed themselves. And they used to have some people helping them, like the editor of a newspaper. But you became the editor of your own newspaper because Facebook wanted to optimize the amount of time you spent on the website. So it basically fed you what it thought you wanted. The problem is that most people wanted junk food. <laughs> and now we're dealing with the aftermath of that, which can be things like Brexit, Trump. You see anxiety, depression, other things going up. So I do believe we're becoming more aware but kind of the hard way. And, you know, an example of this is Facebook's trying to shift to having time well spent, not maximizing time on site. So yes, it can happen, but it's hard. And there will always be something new that we're not ready for. And who knows what the one after this is. Mm. That, that's so true though. Like um, social media is the new, um, I guess, drug that society has no experience with, therefore no control over. Um, Yes, I, I believe a lot of people are addicted to it because, like you said, we're not good um, controllers of our own information inputs. But they seriously, um, like, like, getting a notification on Instagram is a little dopamine hit. Yeah. It's like the same thing as, you know, like the, the habitual thing of smoking cigarettes and having that wire off happy hormones in your brain. So they literally are trying to get cognitive biases to get you to come back. Yeah. And all these things. So, yeah. yeah. And, and But um, when you said, like, you know, we're learning... Um, perhaps the hard way, I think the hard way might actually be the only way. Oh, it is. It's historically been. Yes. So I didn't say, like, of course it is. Well, not of course, but, like, I don't think there is a better way. Yeah. But it's, it's kind of like, you know, it's, it's all about the struggle. You know, there's the pain, then there's the reflection, then there's the progress. And I think as a, as a, as a global population, we are currently experiencing, witnessing the pain of what happens when suddenly information is uh, omnipresent. Maybe there is a better way. Um, so, you know, uh, the ancient Greeks didn't like democracy because they thought that it would be taken over by demagogues and that when people could figure out that they could vote to give themselves pay, that then they'd bankrupt the state, which is kind of what's happened. Um, and they thought that a better outcome, well, some of them thought, like Socrates, that you should have philosopher kings, i.e. really wise people making decisions and the people who didn't know what they were voting for. So they don't understand people that voted for Trump. They would say, the Greeks, that they really knew what they were getting. And they were pushed to vote for them based on emotional buttons like fear of having their guns taken away or something, fear of immigrants, etc. And so if the world was run by philosopher kings, then instead of you, for instance, choosing your information diet by going to Facebook and it reverse optimizing whatever happened, and then people say, well, I want more clicks, so I'm going to feed you clickbait. I'm going to feed you, you know, viral videos. If there was a philosopher king, 
who then decided what you should see. So if people don't, aren't able to make healthy information diet decisions, then you find the person or people who can and you could avoid this. And so I think there is some place for like regulation, which you could call it, or, or for people helping. Um, and so it's just like saying, can a teacher or someone help you be better than you otherwise would have been by yourself? Hell yeah. But there isn't really that. You know, we've been helped in how to procreate as much as possible. We've been helped in how to make as much money as possible. But we haven't really been helped in how to communicate well, how to live a good life. And I think that's what's missing. Mm. And it's only going to change faster than we can keep up with. Um, as Yuval said, in the future, the power is not going to lie with the states or the country to rely with the organizations who have all of this data mm -hmm. to their disposal. Um, and whether or not we're going to be in time to be able to regulate those people because they will control all the gateways, they will control everything in terms of what our, I guess, meat sacks respond to because they will have algorithms that will know what we want before even we do. And if we don't regulate that, then it'll, it might actually get away from us. It might actually mean they become so powerful we can't reel them in. Um, reel who in? Um, organizations who have all this data, organizations who know more about us than, our, than ourselves. Um, I, I, like my takeaway was this is what he was warning us about at the end of his speech at the World Economic Forum. He was kind of sitting there in front of all the heads of states saying, you guys are not going to have the power in a number of years. Organizations who have the data on all of their people and as Facebook shows, they, that these are global powers, that they, they transcend countries, you know, with the exception of possibly China, um, but they're not going to slow down anytime soon. Um, you know, it was kind of like a warning to say, um, you know, corporations or these institutions that have the data of every single person on their platform um, can't be constrained by a single one country or a single one government because they'll know. James, um, look, I think it's, it's, it's an important point. Um, having said which, things can always be used for good and evil. We have the most you know, destructive weapons now that we've ever had. Yet we have the least amount of, you know, and obviously things don't necessarily always go down, but a very interesting book is Stephen Pinker's The Better Angels of Our Nature. If you look at this, domestic violence, white-collar crime, homicide, bullying at school, they've all gone down. And I think that, yes, these things can be used for evil, but they can also be used for good. So Yuval used an example. Most people don't actually know themselves that well. And he himself is a homosexual, and he didn't know that for a long time. And actually, an algorithm could help him figure this out. And I think that self-awareness and personal growth is one of the keys towards living a good life. And if you can have something that helps you understand yourself significantly more and then gives you access to the information and other things, this could lead people to make much better decisions. I think that, you know, net, net, Facebook has its heart in the right place. It doesn't mean that it always does the right thing. If there was an evil, you know, tyrant that got more data and wanted to use it for negative, you know, outcomes, then yeah, it could be bad. But I think it's more likely to be good than it is to be bad. Yeah, I agree that, you know, more so Zuckerberg than Facebook, you know, has always got the best of intention. But that kind of is why they're the saying the road to hell is paved on good intentions. Um, and that's what I was kind of get at with, you know, this is going to get away from us faster than we can regulate it in the sense that, you know, Facebook did made this decision. They, they provided an open API where people could go in and have sways of data, not because Facebook didn't care about their customer data, but because they saw it as a way to 
encourage developers so that they could become the platform that they wanted to become um, and not a uh, monolithic advertiser, which is what they are today. Um, so we're going to keep making mistakes, but the difference between um, today um, and in the past is that these mistakes can have a much bigger impact because we're talking about all connected people on the planet, not just the limitations of a village or one city or even one country. Um, and when you talk about things like AI, then these simple mistakes can suddenly become life-threatening for our entire species. So I, I agree things can be good or evil, but then there's this middle ground where there is mistakes that you can make that either allow for exploitation or that can be irreversible and then cause, um, you know, uh, um, again, so to speak. Yeah, no, I don't disagree. So the, the, the tools are more powerful and the consequences of think getting things wrong are therefore more dire. Mm. Um, so far, we've been able to sort of thread that needle. Um, I think that the power they give you for the upside is better. Um, so, you know, the internet has enabled anyone to publish anything, but it's also enabled you to access all of mankind's knowledge, you know, free anywhere, you know, anytime, basically. Um, and so, I don't know, if, if you're going to go in a plane, there's a chance that you will die. But is it worth that I get to go and visit James in Sydney because I live in Melbourne for that trade-off? Often, there is some downside for the upside. There's definite downside. Um, having said which, I, I'm much more of an optimist that these things net net will be good and that they won't actually end humanity. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think we need to be prudent, but I think that, you know, if, I don't know, I'm much happier that Mark Zuckerberg is running Facebook than Vladimir Putin or something. <laughs> um, and so I do think bad things can happen, but that net net, these are tools for good. Yeah. All right. Thank you. This has been one of the meatiest and most enjoyable topics of discussion were there any other point that you had on your notepad that you wanted to cover hmm. now let's wrap it up so so what is the summary here um the summary for me i think we should have said at the beginning is that humans don't necessarily make rational decisions they are affected by their biological programming and the social indoctrination that, that they have been given um however you can become more aware of this and you can start to then counter the, you know, programming that is sitting inside you. Mm. There are people like Cambridge Analytica who are trying to leverage as much of that wiring to get, you know, perhaps bad outcomes. Um, but we're becoming more aware of this. And I think that the next lot is that humans will become more enlightened. And that's certainly what I hope to do is to help people be able to figure out what it means to live a good life. I think the bottom half of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the deficiency needs are kind of looked after for most people and hopefully everyone soon, poverty's going down. Um, and then it's going to be figuring about how to live a good life. And there's a lack of stuff there. And that's where I'm focusing my time. Yeah. Uh, so for my summary is that I think we're at a pivotal moment in history where, um, as you said, there is this awakening happening. Uh, it's happening very slowly, but as with all things that grow exponentially, i think that over the next two to three decades this awakening will grow exponentially and that's going to be driven largely by uh you know our ability to increase our inputs whether it's through Neuralink and the interconnection of our mind or whether it's simply by optimizing the way that we feed ourselves information today we are learning a lot of um, from our mistakes in terms of what it means to just have 
abundant information. Um, we're learning a lot about what it means to be able to be exploited. So within 10 years time, I'm quite confident things like Facebook, um, social media will be regulated, but we'll also be in a much better place with how that's used and how we use it to connect and interact with each other. Um, so exciting times, Matt. Very exciting times.